Um, okay, we're in Romans 8, so hopefully you're there. This is verses 1 through 18. So I'm going to read, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get started. So Romans 8, 1 through 18, this is from the NASB 95. It says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. <clears throat> but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for bringing us all here, for giving us the opportunity to worship you, God, through song, through prayer, through reading and studying your word. God, I pray that as I be speaking, that it's not me speaking my own thoughts, but it's you speaking through me. God, pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart may be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right. So, welcome. Uh, we have a little outline for those of you who take notes. So I have three sections here. The first section is God's righteous deliverance, verses 1 through 4. Uh, the second section is freedom in Christ and the Holy Spirit, verses 5 through 11. And then the third section is going to be the fleshly life versus the spiritual life. Don't worry, these will pop up on almost every single slide as we're going through. So if you don't have time to write them down, it's okay. We're going to move on. <laughs> so God's righteous deliverance. Right, let's read verses 1 through 4 again. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. All right, verse 1, it says, therefore, if you've been around here long enough, you know, right? What is the therefore, therefore? Why are we saying therefore, right? We'll turn back, or maybe don't even turn back, but the end of Romans chapter 7, 
right? Romans 7, verses 22 through 25, we saw this last week. Romans 7, 22 through 25 says, this is Paul talking, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Right, so Paul is thinking about this divergence kind of between him and his sinful flesh, right, and then like his inner desire, right, his mind, his spirit's desire, what he actually wants to do, which is serve God. And that's what's happening at the end of Romans 7, right? Last week we saw deep down in our spirits, as Christians, we want to serve God, right? We don't actually want to sin. If I asked, I don't know, Blake, and I was like, <clears throat> Blake, with a clear conscience, do you want to serve God or do you want to sin? It's like, we, we would say we want to serve God, right? But sometimes it just happens, right? Sometimes we get tempted and we choose sin. We go back to temptation, right? Paul is saying, wretched man that I am, in verse 24. He's so distraught because of the realization of his sinfulness. But look at what it follows up with, right? Romans 7.25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. So Paul answers the question from verse 24, right? Who will set me free? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul makes it pretty clear that Jesus has saved him from this body of sin and flesh. Even when Paul is recounting his sinfulness, he is certain that he is saved by the grace of God through faith. And this is what is leading into Romans 8.1. And that is why we see, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So here's a question for you. What is grace? What What does that mean? Yes, Josiah says, getting something you don't deserve, that is correct. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. We are saved by grace, by God's grace. Paul recalls that he is sinful, even though he ultimately doesn't want to sin, because of his justified spirit, his spirit that in his inner self does not sin, but his flesh still does. Even though we are sinners, though, we are saved. This is grace. The punishment fell on Jesus Christ. And this is the amazing grace of God for eternal salvation. This is what's setting up the events of Romans chapter 8, as we'll see this week and we'll see next week. R.C. Sproul says, Paul is telling his readers in light of the foregoing reminder of their continuing sinfulness that they must now recall their acceptance, immunity, and security in Christ. Right. And I think I mentioned this, but as we saw last week too, our spirit right, has been justified before God. Right. In Romans 7.20, Paul says he's not the one sinning, but it is his flesh. Right? It is sin in him that is sinning. So partially, there's no condemnation because there's part of us that is justified, right? that does not sin. Paul says, it is not me that sins, but it's sin within me. Does that make sense? Good. Let's read Romans 8, 1 and 2. It says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Okay, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Are we under the law, 
quote-unquote, capital L, law as believers? No. Good job. We are not under the law of Moses. That is correct. But what, right, does that, does that mean that we don't have anything ever that we've been instructed to do? Right, like we still have stuff that we should be doing. Right? We still have commands in the New Testament that we should be following. It's not like those eternally separate us from God. But if we don't do them, they might, on this life, separate our fellowship. Right? We have the law of liberty, law of Christ, right? law of the spirit of life. We still have things we're instructed to do. Love God, love others. Right? The great commandments. What about making disciples, right? the great commission? We have responsibilities. Right? But interestingly... Romans 8.2 says that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What does that mean? <laughs> so here's a question. What does it mean? What does it mean that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free? Here's a rephrasing of that question. What do you think would be some specific aspect of, quote, the law of the spirit of life in Jesus Christ? You think of law, you think of things that are like guaranteed, right? Like in math, if you have a thing that, I'll be bringing up math a lot. If you have a thing that's a law, it means that in every observable case, it is true, right? In every single time, right? E equals MC squared every single time, right? We have not yet found a reason or a circumstance in which that does not hold true. A law is something that always happens, right? What is guaranteed about the Holy Spirit or about Jesus Christ? We'll see this a little later, but in Romans 8, 9, right, which we'll, we'll read it later, but it says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So here's what I think is part of that law of the spirit, part of the guaranteed things of God, right? If you are in Christ, you will have the Holy Spirit. It is a one-to-one relationship, right? And we'll, we'll see more on that also when we hit verse 9 and verse 14. But um, here's a little illustration that I like, so... We're going to get into some logic here. So one-to-one relationships, if and only ifs. This means if something is true, the other thing is true. And it works the other way around. So a counterexample, right? If it's raining, there are clouds in the sky, right? So like if it's raining, let's call that A, that means that there are clouds in the sky, B. But it doesn't necessarily work the other way around. We can't say that if there are clouds in the sky, it is necessarily raining. That's not always true. Right. But as we'll see in verse 9 and in verse 14, if you have the Holy Spirit, you're in Christ. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not in Christ. It works both ways, and it is a definite relationship. So we'll see that more. Okay. Does that kind of make sense? Okay. Right. But this is actually good news. If we're believers... If we're believers, we have the Holy Spirit, which means that we have the power to be free from sin. For the law of the spirit of life in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, has set you free from the law of sin and death. And that's kind of what I get out of this verse. Any questions to this point? Okay, cool. I know it seems like we're we're only two verses in, but there's so much. So you try to hit all of it, and then you just realize... You can. Okay, let's read verses 3 and 4. It says, For what the law could not do, right, the law, the law of Moses, what that could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, through our flesh, God did, 
sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Does this concept sound familiar? We have this idea of we are sinful and we can't do it, but Christ came and like gave us his righteousness. There's a lot in the Bible about this. But another one of Paul's letters where he says something uh, very familiar, 2 Corinthians 5.21, right? He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Right? So like this is the great trade of the Bible. Christ became sin for us. Verse is a little tricky, but that's what it says, right? He made him who knew no sin to be sin. He fulfilled, right? Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses perfectly. He never sinned. And then he died in punishment, a punishment that he did not deserve. He's the only person in history who did not earn death from his sin because he didn't sin. But he died for us anyways, which means that the wrath of God was righteously fulfilled. And even more so, right? Verse one, we are not condemned because, look at verse three, right? The second half, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Christ condemned sin, (laughs) right? We are not condemned. Sin is condemned. Christ took the punishment on himself and thus the power that sin would have had to eternally separate all men from God has been condemned by Jesus, right? Sin is condemned, not us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is righteous and yet gracious because the wrath that we earned was poured out on Jesus Christ. God's righteousness is persevered, or not persevered, preserved to forgive us, right? Because the sin has already been paid for. All we need to do is believe in Jesus Christ for everlasting life, and we have it, and God is righteous to give it to us. In verses 3 and 4, we see as a whole, right, verses 3 and 4, that God sent Jesus to pay the price for sin, to condemn sin itself, so that we might have God's righteousness. Us who are in the Spirit are justified by God. So God's righteousness is preserved in justifying us. Okay. Anyone here feel like they're in seminary? Because I'm like, this is the most, like, heady I've had to get over, like, anything ever. Um, Does that make sense? Are there any questions? Is anybody kind of just mind-blanking any questions they would have had? Okay, cool. We're going to move on to the second section, right? So this section was God's righteous deliverance, right? And I named it this because God is righteous to deliver us from eternal separation. The only reason because of that is because of Christ. Otherwise, to fulfill his righteousness, he would have had to condemn us if not for Christ. Next section, freedom in Christ and the Holy Spirit. Three verses five through eight. It says, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's a lot here. We're going to get into it. 
Right? So here's another kind of dichotomy, right? Things that are contrasting, things that are like going against each other between setting your mind on things of the spirit and setting your mind on things of the flesh. They're opposites. Paul makes that pretty clear. Right? So are you setting your mind on things of the flesh? Are you setting your mind on things of the spirit? Right? Which path are you taking? Hence why I have subways going through this PowerPoint. So now you know the theme of why everything's like a metro system, right? Which path are you taking? Are you setting your mind on things of the flesh or are you setting your mind on things of the spirit? What does verse six say? It says, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. All right, so the mind set on the spirit or the mind set on the flesh is death. What does that mean, right? Remember from a couple chapters ago, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. Right? We talked about this idea that every sin causes death in some way. Something dies, right? Maybe our fellowship with God dies. Probably our fellowship with God dies, right? Our fellowship with our friends and our family might die. Many more things are capable of dying because of sin. You are capable of dying because of sin. Not eternally, but physically. And we'll get into that a little later. In this way, though, right, to set the mind on the flesh is death. When you sin, something dies. But what about the other part of verse 6, right? To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Life and peace to set your mind on the things of the spirit. Do you think, if you're walking in the spirit, not yet, do you think if you're walking in the spirit that you will have peace? You might agree with me in the context of this lesson right now. Okay, yeah, if I set my mind on the spirit, I'll have life and peace. Peace, that makes sense. Right, but what about when you go home, when you're being tempted by sin? In those moments, do you still believe at a heart level that you will have peace when you walk in the spirit? I know that I often don't. If I did, I would be a lot less sinful. Let's look at some scriptures, right? This is Philippians 4, verse 5b, right? Second half of 5 through 7. It says, The Lord is near. Be anxious about nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This verse gives a direct promise to the church in Philippi, who are all just generic believers. It's not like Jesus is talking just to the apostles, so it's just apostle things. This is just generic believers, so this applies to us. This verse says, when we come to God in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we make our request known to God, we will have the peace of God. There's a lot of application here, but this can also be tricky to understand. I do understand some people are more prone to anxiety than others, and there are a lot of diagnosable forms of anxiety too, right? And sometimes our brains just default to anxiety, right? I understand that. I think that this verse is talking a little bit more about that general anxiety that just comes to everyone like, oh man, them finals, right? Like (laughs) I think it's more talking about that like, no, stop, right? Pray about it, right? But even if someone does have kind of more that extreme anxiety, I still think it's good to pray, right? Still pray, still trust God about it because I think there's a form of peace that will still come. Right? I think there is a type of peace that will still come to anyone when they pray about this. I don't know what it'll look like for everyone, but I do think that if we can take God at his word and that we can have some sort of peace when we pray about our anxieties. Does that make sense? I think this is a very powerful verse. Right? 
We will have life and peace when we set our mind on the things of the Spirit. Another verse, Psalm 119.11. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Sin is death. I might not die. (laughs) Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. First of all, if you're looking for a reason to start memorizing scripture, this is it. This verse is what convinced little freshman Alec to start doing verse memory. I have a senior now. It's only been three years, but it feels like a lot longer. I remember meeting in the student union my freshman year with Cannon Black, who is now at a seminary in Dallas, Texas, right, the heart of the earth. Um, <laughs> he kept telling me that scripture memory was a valuable thing and that I should just be doing it, but I just sat there like Steve Rogers, like, no, I don't think I will. Right? And it was only after he showed me this verse, right, after he showed me Psalm 119.11 that I felt convicted. Right? This is a powerful verse. This verse suggests that treasuring the word of God in our hearts is a way to guard against sin. We have peace because we are not sinning. And instead, we're setting our mind on spiritual things, right? Like capital S, like spiritual, like God, right? Not like gemstones, right? Like actually good things, right? Like verse 6 says in Romans 8, like it says, the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. So we see that to set your mind on the flesh is death, sin, something dies, right? But to set your mind on the spirit, on the things of God is life, right? With God, fellowship with God and peace. So what about verses seven and eight, right? It says, right, at the end of verse six, the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, verse seven, because the mind set on the flesh is what? Is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you're actively living in the flesh, if you're living in sin, at that moment, can you also at that moment worship God? No. You cannot at the same time be sinning and in fellowship with God. You can't please God and please the flesh at the same time, right? You can't do it. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. The context there is the love of God and the love of money. But I also think it can apply to the love of God and the love of like anything else. <laughs> right? No one can serve two masters. You can't actively be living in sin and also at the same time be pleasing God. The two are mutually exclusive. More math. Right? <clears throat> so in math, we have this idea of things being mutually exclusive. So everyone knows what the Venn diagram looks like, right? Like the little two circles with the overlap. So this is Venn diagram. And you know, you have some stuff in the middle where it's like, I can be doing both A and B at the same time. Mutually exclusive means these two circles do not overlap. So you have A and B. And if you're in A, you're not in B. And if you're in B, you're not in A. And it doesn't matter how far, you're still not there, right? You cannot be sinning and serving God at the same time. And if you're serving God, you're not sinning, right? If you are loving God and loving others, the entire law and the prophets is fulfilled in that. Jesus says that. The two are mutually exclusive. Does that make sense? Okay. But what if, what if B is sin? Because you know A is better. If B is sin, what if you're in B? How do you get to A? It's a point of repentance. That is why repentance is a thing that exists. What does repentance mean, right? What does the word mean for repentance? To change your mind. When you're in sin, to come back to fellowship with God, you need to repent, meaning you need to change your mind about the sin and turn back to God and start following him. 
right? And that is how you maintain and restore, that's how you restore that fellowship with God. You cannot please God and be sinning at the same time. And that's what I think verses 7 and 8 are getting. Okay. Does that make sense? Any questions? Read verses 9 through 11, because Paul is about to make a big transition here. Right, verses 9 through 11, it says, However, you, right, you, Romans, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Right, so Paul is shifting his focus now from the general case, right? We talk about a lot of like theology, a lot of like ideas. Paul talked a lot about general ideas and now he's addressing the Roman church directly. Right? He says, but you, y'all, right? All y'all at, at the Roman church. Right? That's who he's talking to now. Paul says that you, the Roman church, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. So let's pause here. Right. So Paul says, if indeed, in this verse. And this is actually a special form of if that only appears a few times in the Bible. If you're a nerd like me and a couple people on the front row here and some other people in here, then we talk about ifs a lot. We talk about like the classes of ifs. Right. This if indeed is a special combination word in the Greek. Right. It is I pair. Right. In the Greek, this means if indeed, or since, or if after all. Basically, this is like a first class if, right? In a first class if it pushes up classes, right? A first class <laughs> if is something that um, assumes that this is true for the sake of argument. Right. So first class if is like saying, hey, if I'm wearing a suit right now, I'm probably pretty warm. And I am wearing a suit right now. Right. It's like that's the idea. This is like a first class if, but a little more spicy. Okay. <clears throat> a first class if is like saying if and assuming that this is true. And I pair is like saying if, and I'm going to assume this, but it may not always 100% be true. So we'll see that conditional statement, this, this same word again in verse 17. So stay tuned for that. But here in the context of this verse, Right. Paul is addressing the church in Rome, who, keep in mind, he has been meaning to visit. He hasn't actually made it to Rome yet. This, the whole point of Romans is, hey, guys, I haven't been there. So I'm going to write a whole bunch about theology and about Christian living so that you just have everything. Right? You have everything you need. Right? But he hasn't been to Rome, and he's saying that the church in Rome is not in the flesh, but they're in the spirit. If, after all, they do have the spirit. It's like Paul is assuming that the members of the church in Rome have the Holy Spirit. But it's not definitive. Like there's a possibility that there are some people in the church in Rome who are not believers. Like they just showed up. Right? They don't necessarily have the Holy Spirit. That is an option and it's something that can be the case. Although Paul's main point here is that the church has the Holy Spirit. Right? That's his main point. He's like, guys, you have the Holy Spirit. It's possible that some of you don't. This might seem really nitpicky, but this actually has a lot of meaning when we get to verse 17, which is why I'm explaining it in detail here. Because when we get to verse 17, it is a head scratcher theologically. But that's why we're going into the detail of what I pair means here. Right? <clears throat> it's like if this arrow is like Paul's argument of his point, and his point stands. 
right? But there's this little like filter here. It's like just in case little grains of sand are like, oh wait, <laughs> like they will get stopped. But that's that's kind of the point behind this eye pair. It's like if I'm gonna assume that this is true, but it might not always 100% necessarily be true. Does that make sense? Okay. okay. In verse nine, overall, Paul is saying that the folks in Rome are not of the flesh. Right? They are of the spirit, which is really good considering what we read in verses one through eight. They're of the spirit, assuming that the Holy Spirit is in them. He also says that anyone who does not have the Holy Spirit does not belong to him, as in they're not a believer. Any questions? Verses 10 and 11, right? Paul uses some more conditionals, right? But let's just read 10 and 11. All right, it says, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. All right, so these, these ifs are the first class. These are the ones that are like, guys, if this is true, the, like it's 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 true, right? You have the Holy Spirit. I just I just filtered out all those nerds who don't, right? For the rest of you, you have the Holy Spirit, right? If you if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Right? And then verse eleven, I just think is a really cool picture of the Trinity and how it works together, right? Verse eleven, it says, "If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus." From the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So it's like a double trinity. It's like he talks, he kind of goes one way and then runs it back the other way, right? He says, guys, if you have the spirit, God who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise you and give you life. And, right, this is also important. When do people get eternal life? The moment they believe this that guy's popping off today. Right. <clears throat> yeah, the moment they believe, right? John 5, 24 says this, right? Jesus is talking. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Present tense, has eternal life. And he does not come into judgment. They won't be judged in the future, right? but they have passed from death to life. Past tense, they have already passed from death to life. So people who are believers already have eternal life. So, to recap this little section here, right? Paul has shifted his attention more towards his audience in Rome in verses 9 through 11. And Paul says that assuming these people are believers, as in they have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is life, and God will grant these people life after death with him. They already have the life, but God will raise them from the dead. Does that make sense? Okay, any questions? We're going to hit the third section. Okay. If I need to slow down, just let me know. The fleshly life versus the spiritual life, verses 12 through 18. And let's start with verses 12 and 13 in that little section. It says, so then, brethren, right? Now we're getting to some application, right? Paul, Paul's saying, okay, I've explained all this in the general sense. I've explained this as it applies to you in Rome. And now we're going to see Paul's call to action, right? Let's read. So then, brethren, we are not under obligation or, or we, are, we are under obligation, but not to the flesh, right? We are under obligation, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
Okay, verse 12, right? Notice this transition here from verse 11 to verse 12. Verse 12 says, we are under obligation. Why are we under obligation? Why do we have responsibilities as believers? Verse 11, right? What does verse 11 say? It says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and it does, right? You have the Holy Spirit. God has given us eternal life, right? The spirit will raise us from the dead. And now we have the responsibility to live for him, right? This is outlined really well in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Right? In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right, is the, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Right? But then his, next, his very next verse is, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them, right? We have responsibilities that we should fulfill. We have this obligation, right? We are saved by grace through faith and, right, comma, and, both in conjunction, God has given us responsibility in this life. So we have things to do, right? We have a life to live for God. We're saved by grace through faith. We're not saved by our works, but we do have good works that we should be doing. Does that make sense? All right, Gideon's phone, does that make sense? Okay. okay, sounds good. All right, so we saw verse 12, we're under obligation, right, but not to the flesh. And what does verse 13 say? If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, wait a second. Right. Verse 13. What does it mean that if we're living according to the flesh, we must die? Remember verse 6? Death always comes from sin. You might, you might physically die because of your sin. Right? See King Saul. Um, in 1 Samuel 28, King Saul goes to a medium. right? Not a small or a large, a medium. Right? And he says, hey, I need to talk to Samuel. I know he's dead, but I need to talk to Samuel. Right. And then the medium's like, sure, I can definitely make that happen and does some stuff. And then Samuel actually comes back and the medium's really freaked out, which I just think is so funny. <laughs> and Samuel's like, dude, you're stupid. What are you doing? Like, because you have done this thing, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Right? You will be dead because you have not turned back to God. Right? Sam not Samuel. Saul died because of his sin. Right? I was reading in First Chronicles 13 today. <laughs> And there's a guy named Uzzah who is walking alongside the Ark of the Covenant as it's being brought some places. And first of all, they're not carrying it the way they should. It's on like some cart or whatever. The Levites are supposed to carry it. And then this guy, Uzzah, like the cart starts like messing around and he's like, oh no, I better go touch the Ark of the Covenant to make sure that it doesn't fall. And he dies immediately because he wasn't supposed to touch it. He died because of his sin. So there is death that comes when we live according to the flesh. That is a possibility. Right? We also see in this verse, though, right? well, there's death, but there's also spiritual death. Right? There's also that fellowship that dies with God, fellowship with other people. So there is definitely death that comes from sin. Right? And then the second half, we also see that there is life from putting to death the deeds of the body. What could that be, right? What life do we get when we are sanctified, when we put to death the deeds of the body? That seems interesting. Think about both like fellowship with God, like temporal life, like 
living your best life for God and the fullness of life in Christ. Right? What does John 10, 10 say? It's up here. <laughs> the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life, comma, and have it abundantly. Right? Life versus abundant life. I think this verse is making a distinction. This is just my thoughts between, okay, Jesus comes, right? He dies. He, rose, he rises again. He gives people eternal life. And he has come so that people may have life abundantly. Right? If you're following Christ, you'll have like, you'll have life if you're a believer, but you'll also have like better life, right? Life like with an asterisk on it. It's like this is better than the other one, right? Your life will be better if you are following Christ than if you're not. Either way, you'll go to heaven if you're a believer, but your life will be better if you're following Christ. Okay, does that make sense? Verses 14 through 17. It says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself, God, right? The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed... We suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So what does it mean to be a son of God, right? Verse 14, all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. Well, you could just be like, it means that you're being led by the spirit of God. Alex. But like, what does it mean to be a son of God? Right? Actually, like John 1.12 talks about this, right? John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Right. You're a child of God if you're a believer. That's what that means. Right. And this is that one-to-one -one relationship I was talking about earlier over here. If you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. We see that in verse 9. If you have the Holy Spirit, you're a believer. Right. We see that in verse 14. There's that if and only if I was talking about. Right. What about verse 15? You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Question, did God give us a spirit of fear? No. <laughs> right, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but what kind of spirit did God give us? God has not given us a spirit of timidity, fear, but of power and love and discipline. And that's 2 Timothy 1.7. We're not called to be afraid in the Christian life, right? We are called to live in the spirit and to walk by the spirit, which is walking in power and love and discipline. Right? Our flesh, our fleshly lives want us to fear everything except God. Right? Our flesh wants us to be afraid of evangelism, of serving. Right? Our flesh wants us to be anxious because it's counter to God's plan. Our flesh, the world, and the devil all do not want us to serve, and they try to convince us that we aren't equipped for service, that we're not good enough, quote-unquote. The truth is, the moment you believe God gives you spiritual gifts to serve the body of Christ, right? to live the spiritual life, to set your mind on things of the Spirit, to do spirit things, right? <laughs> Capital S, spirit things. We are called to serve, to build up the body of Christ. Right? Ephesians 4 says that. Every evil power wants to stop us from doing the one thing that we can actually do that's worth anything in the Christian life, which is serve God and serve others. 
But fear tries to stop us. Anxiety tries to stop us. The only thing, person, or deity that we should fear is God. N.D. Wilson, we are called to fear God and nothing else in existence. I love this quote. And the fear of the Lord is not a fear like we fear other things. Right? It's not like... But it's like awe and reverence, right? It's a recognition of the power that God has. It, it's, it's a right viewing of God. Because if you understand how powerful God is, why would you not serve him, right? Like, fear God, respect God, revere him. Other than that, we are called to be fearless in this life. Especially, especially because we will have no reason to fear in the next, if indeed we are believers in this room. Verses 15 and 16, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We have not received a spirit of fear lead you back into slavery to sin, that you're free from sin, but you've received a spirit of adoption. God has ransomed you. He has redeemed you back into his home, back into his family. He's adopted you. And we cry out, Abba, Father. Right? And this Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit, right, with the sanctified part of us that does not sin, that we are saved. That we are children of God. Verse 17. If children, right, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. This is a fun one, right? Here's that other example of that if indeed that I was talking about earlier. This verse can be a little tricky to understand, but here's my interpretation. I think that this verse says, right, first first part, I think it says believers are heirs. That seems pretty straightforward from the first part of the verse, right? We see if children, heirs also, heirs of God, right? And, and then it gets money, right? The variable here is the glory that we come into when we're glorified. That is where this if indeed comes in that we talked about earlier. So let's look at some Greek. Nerd time. Let's look at the Greek word for be glorified with him in this passage. Good luck saying that, right? It is the word syndoxadza. I think that is how you pronounce that. Is it an acceptable pronunciation? No? Okay. Maybe. Okay, that's fair. (laughs) Well, I happen to be a sinner, so that's fine. Um, So this word means to approve together. Right? To join in approving something or to glorify together something. Let's look at how often this word is used in the Bible. That's it. This is the only time that this word in the Greek is used in the entire New Testament. More common versions of the word glorification or like to be glorified do exist and they are used elsewhere. But they are not used here. This leads me to believe that this means something special. Other than just being quote-unquote glorified as we think glorification is with Christ usually. It's a different word, so why wouldn't it mean something slightly different? So here is my interpretation of Romans 8.17. Believers, children of God, are heirs with Christ. We get life, guaranteed. If we desire to live for God, which most believers do, right? See last week's lesson. You ask someone, I ask Gideon, Gideon, with a clear conscience and heart and in fellowship with God, do you want to serve God or sin? And you're like, 
I can't answer that for you, but I assume I know what you're going to say. All right. Yep. <laughs> Serve God, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Most people want to live for God, right? And if we desire to live godly lives, we will be persecuted in some way. There's a little tie-in to you from last semester, from 2 Timothy. Right? 2 Timothy 3.12 says, For all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We talk about God's promises. That's not necessarily one that we like to hear. But it is true. It's in the word, right? If we are desiring to live for God, there will be some sort of suffering, some sort of persecution. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it will happen. For those who suffer, and then last point, for those who do suffer, glory with Christ comes. For those who don't suffer, there's a kind of glory that Christ will have that those people won't. So there's a little bit of a distinction there. It's not you're not saved, but there is some kind of glorification that's like, you might not, like, if you're not suffering, like, yeah, you're not. This is not the kind of glorification that you'll have. And I just, I read that from the verse. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. Any questions pressing before we hit the last verse? No? Okay. Okay, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is telling the believers who are reading this message that the sufferings that we will face in this life are not even worth comparing to the future glory of heaven. Think about it, right? It's not even worth comparing. This is something that I didn't realize until like when I read this, like last time that I read this. But it's not even worth the comparison, right? What? It's not like Paul's saying, oh, yeah, guys, don't worry. Like, because heaven and eternity, it's, it's yeah, I think, I think it's going to be better. Right? Like, no, he's actually, he's not doing that. Paul considers that even the effort that could be spent to, by us to compare this weak, fragile, vapor-like life on this planet to the glories of, hef- of heaven, right? those efforts of comparison are not worth it. Don't even try to compare this life to the next and try to make a pros and cons chart, right? Like, hmm, well, down here I get to be married, but in heaven no one will be married, so I guess that's one for the earth. Like, stop, right? <laughs> don't, don't do that, right? The comparison itself is not worth it. Fix your eyes entirely on Jesus, walking in the Spirit, on fellowship with the Father, and on eternal things. Don't even think about what this world may or may not have to offer you compared to heaven. God and his eternity, which we're going to see really soon in Revelation, and it's going to be super cool, right? It's so much better than the earth. Strive for that and don't look back. Walk in the spirit, not the flesh, because it is so much better. It's not even worth comparing. All right, I have application, but is there any questions before we hit application? Okay. Application. Let's walk in the spirit, right? That is in fellowship with God and serving him and others. It's the best thing that you could ever do with your life. Nothing compares. Galatians 5.16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Fear nothing except God. Fear and anxiety are cousins. Fear is being afraid of the present. Anxiety is being afraid of the future. Both are wrong. Let's only fear God, right? Cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for us. It's First Peter 5, 7. He's big enough to hold them. Right? 
pray, give thanks to God, and let him know what you want. And this is the way to peace. And then finally, let's fix our eyes on eternity and on Christ. Right? Hebrews 12 talks about that. Don't even worry about this world. Right? Just serve God with everything that you have now. Be zealous for the things of God, and you won't regret it. Right? Paul says that it's not even worth comparing. Any final questions, thoughts? I had discussion, but we're also two minutes over when we need to be gone. So. All right, I'll pray, and we'll get out of here. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for opening your word to us, Father. I pray that these people would just take some application, that I would take some application. God, that we realize that even though, yes, we do sin, we are not at our core, God. God, we are justified at our core. We are not sinners, God. It is sin in us. God, I pray that we would strive to not be afraid in this life, but we would walk in the Spirit, that we would live in you, God, and that we would be excited and zealous for the things of you. We would not even compare this life to the life that is to come, but we would just wholeheartedly run after you, Father. God, help us to take this word, take JB's words, and anything else that we may hear today that is edifying, and help us to use it to build us up, God, and just go from here and live well. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you.